Good to feel the buzz in the room. Well, um, just over a year ago, our daughter Georgina got a new dog, Goose. There should be a picture of him coming up. Um, come on, Leo. You don't have it? There you do. Thank you, TP. Look at him. Uh, he, those of you who are not dog people won't understand this, but every dog has its own personality. The dog owners are all nodding. Uh, we've, we've always had dogs, Grace and I, since we've been married. And, uh, uh, Goose is rapidly moving to the top of the hierarchy of our favorite dog. Oh, shock. Is that disloyalty to the previous dogs? But he, he is brilliant fun. He's got such a strong personality. He's super affectionate. He's obviously amazing looking. He is even more muscly than I am. He's absolutely ripped. I've never seen such muscular definition in a dog. He is awesome. He's fantastic. He, he's probably, probably the favorite member of the family. I'm pretty sure, <laughs> pretty sure that Grace prefers him to me. And who can blame her? I, I probably prefer him to Grace. But um, We all love this dog. He's a brilliant dog. Been a great addition to the family. But he's had been absolutely terrible at recoil. And if you have a dog, you know there is no, you're laughing with your terrible dog. It, uh, <laughs> there is nothing more frustrating than the dog you cannot get back. And he uh, doesn't run off, would stay close, but when you come to actually try and put him on the lead, he'd always get out of the way. And he's a whippet. You cannot catch a whippet. You can be Usain Bolt and you will not catch a, a whippet, especially one with as many muscles as he has. And we have been in the park on the beach, with crowds of people enlisted to try and wrangle the dog. Multitudes of people trying to hem him in. Members of my family have been reduced to tears of frustration and anger, embarrassment and shame, as for up to two hours they have been trying to catch the wretched dog who is right there, but as soon as you try and catch him, it's too fast and goes out the way. Just, and it has moved at times from that just kind of frustration to... to Real embarrassment, actual to real shame, and literally, members of the family in tears. It's been absolutely terrible. Now, a miracle has happened, and he is now different. And I might might tell you how we changed his behaviour another time. But <laughs> it just has to come back again. Just have to come back again. I've got to save these illustrations up. They're best. I don't have too many of them. Got to make. Got to string them out. Uh, what is your most embarrassing? moment. What's the most embarrassing thing? It's a question, you might have done it in life group this term, what's your most embarrassing moment? It's kind of an icebreaker moment, but what is your most shameful moment? What's the thing that doesn't just make your toes curl, and which you might, in a, somebody says in a life group, icebreaker, what's your most embarrassing moment? You'll tell it because it's funny but it still makes your toes curl. What, what doesn't just make your toes curl, toes curl a little bit, but what is that thing which you just wouldn't even want to acknowledge? You'd never want it spoken out. You'd never want it brought into the light. The thing which is most socially destructive to you, the thing which you think if it was spoken out loud, that would be the end for you in terms of your relationships with other people. Now, you might be fortunate, and you might not actually be able to think of something like that in your life. You might not carry that sense of shame, but my guess is there would probably be a fairly high percentage of people in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And that even as I mention it, you are kind of dying, curling up inside, because there is that thing of shame in your life which you would just hate anybody else to know about. And it's not just your toes curl, but your whole kind of soul curls as you think about it. This is what the psalm says, Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Lord, let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. So what I'm aiming for today is to try and show us what shame is, why it's so powerful, and how Jesus deals with our shame. And as we start that, we actually need to do a little bit of uh, work to understand the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are words that we use interchangeably often and can have some of the same sort of feelings for us, but actually are, are rather different in terms of how they work. And Western societies, societies like the UK, anthropologists would say, have historically been guilt-based. Other cultures are shame-based. We live in a guilt-based culture. And guilt is the emotion that you feel when you don't live up to a particular standard. In, in essence, there's a law which needs to be kept, and if you don't keep the law, you feel guilty as a consequence. And those laws actually can, can be entirely arbitrary. So the vegetarian who sneaks a bacon sandwich, which nobody knows about and nobody sees, there is one member of our congregation who claims to be vegetarian, but I've heard rumors that when she thinks nobody's looking, she sneaks off to McDonald's for a Big Mac. <laughs> but that sense of guilt, even if nobody sees it. Or maybe it's if you took out a gym membership in January, as many do, and you had good intentions to go three times a week at seven o'clock in the morning, and it's that wet morning and it's dark, and you stay in bed for that extra half an hour rather than going to the gym, and it doesn't matter, who cares? It doesn't matter, but you can still have that sense of guilt. Or that day when you just get a bit lazy and you put a glass bottle into the general rubbish rather than the recycling, and it's going to make absolutely no difference to the fate of the world in the grand scheme of things, but you can still feel a sense of guilt. I didn't do the rubbish right. I didn't recycle. A sense of guilt, feeling there's a debt that has to be paid. There's a standard that needs to be met, and if you don't meet it, there's a debt that has to be paid. Now, we tend to take that kind of guilty feeling for granted. It's the air that we breathe. But actually, lots of cultures, people in lots of cultures, don't respond in that way. I'm going to give a couple of examples from a book by a man called Joseph Henrich, who's an anthropologist at Harvard, and he wrote an influential book called The Weirdest People in the World. And this is a helpful way to understand how we are in our culture. We're weird. We're Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And that shapes how we respond. And this, a lot of this comes from guilt. Here's an example that he gives in his book. He says, uh, up until the year... Uh, go back. You're, you're rushing ahead of me, Leo. Uh, up until the year 2002, uh, diplomats at the United Nations in New York were exempt from paying parking fines. And so diplomats could park where they weren't meant to. They would get tickets, but then the tickets wouldn't be paid. In the five years up to 2002, 1997 to 2002, 150,000 150, unpaid parking tickets were issued to UN diplomats. Uh, $18 million unpaid fine. 
Now, the interesting thing about that is that some countries, the UK, Sweden, Canada, Australia, and a couple of other countries, received zero parking tickets in those five years. Whereas there are other nations where every member of the diplomatic delegation received 100 or more parking tickets, which were not paid. Now, why is that? Why do people from some nations, some cultures, not get parking tickets, not, pay where not, not park where they're not meant to? Why do people from other cultures just not care where they park and rack up hundreds, potentially, of parking tickets and not pay them? It's because of guilt, or it's because of shame. If you come from a guilt-based culture, there's a standard that must be kept. If you come from a shame-based culture, the law is irrelevant. It's just a parking ticket. Guilt actually comes directly from Christianity. There's an external standard, there's a law, which we then internalize and that holds us to account. And the argument of Henrich is that's why we are weird. We're driven by guilt. Shame works differently from that. In a shame-based culture, what counts is not some law, but your relationships with other people. It's what counts is how you are perceived by your family and your friends, by your clan. And as long as you maintain face with them, it doesn't matter whether you pay a parking ticket or not. It's Irrelevant. And this means that in shame-based cultures, people are more likely to do these kind of things. They're more likely to lie under oath if that's going to help a close friend. They're more likely to give friends insider company information to give them a financial advantage. They're more likely to lie about a friend's medical exam in order to get lower insurance rates. They're more likely to post a false review about a friend's restaurant if it's going to help them in the rankings. This is what Joseph Henrich says about this. In a shame-based culture, people aren't trying to distinguish themselves as relentlessly honest individuals governed by impartial principles. Instead, they are deeply loyal to their friends and want to cement enduring relationships, even if this involves illegal actions. In these places, being nepotistic is often the morally correct thing to do. By contrast, in weird societies, Many people think badly of those who weight family and friends over impartial principles and anonymous criteria like qualifications, merit, or effort. What he's saying is that if you came to a meeting of the Gateway Trustees, the only way you could understand what we do there is if you come from a guilt-based culture. It only makes sense if you are driven by guilt. And you'll know this, if you've ever sat on a board, I'm a, on the governing board of a school, if you've ever been in that kind of trustees governing type position, or if you work in HR, you'll know this. It's actually driven by guilt. You're meant to apply, in our culture, objective standards. What counts is the anonymous things, qualifications, merits, and efforts. Not who you are or who you are related to, and that is weird. So as a school governor, I've been involved in interviewing people who are applying for senior positions in the school. And in that position, you're not allowed to ask the personal questions in the interview. Not allowed to ask the human questions. Not allowed to say, tell me about yourself. Are you married? Have you got kids? You're not allowed to ask those questions because in our culture, that's seen as biased. What we value is the anonymous criteria like qualifications, merit, or 
efforts. Now, that comes directly because of the Christian belief in God. There's a judge to whom we must give account. And that is more significant than loyalty to your family or your friends. And over the centuries, that has morphed into the general sense of guilt with which we live. And so if you've ever felt guilt over having that extra slice of cake, I mean, who cares? It's the air that we breathe. That's why you feel guilty. Now, the sense of guilt has diminished the power of shame in our culture. We expect to be judged as individuals before the law. And so for us, not lying under oath for a friend is the righteous, it's the moral thing to do. In a shame-based culture, lying under oath for a friend, that's the righteous, that's the moral thing to do. Now, the good news for us, the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus deals with our guilt. Christianity without Christ is utterly merciless. We know there's a standard. We can never attain it. You can never keep the law perfectly. You can't even get your recycling 100% right. A standard you can't reach. And that leads to all kinds of anxiety and introspection and legalism. And it sucks the fun out of life. And if you've ever been a school governor or worked in HR, you know. It sucks the fun out of life. That's what guilt does. But the gospel shows us that Jesus rescues us from this. That he has perfectly met the standard. He's the one who did perfectly, completely, utterly fulfill the demands of the law. And there's this been amazing exchange where his righteousness now counts as ours. We put our faith in him and his righteousness is given to us. The debt is paid. There's nothing more for us to do. We are free. That's the amazing gospel of grace. If you take grace out of Christianity, all you're left with is guilty introspection and legalism. We need to keep grace front and center what Christ has done. And so what you most might need to hear today is this message of freedom from guilt. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a gospel, what a message. Our sins no longer counted against us. All those parking tickets, everything else, swept away. You are righteous. Your life is not to be governed by guilt. It's to be governed by the grace of God in Christ. That's good news. Get rid of the grace, and all you're left with is the legalism. It's miserable. We need to know, celebrate, enjoy the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus deals with our guilt. But what about shame? I think perhaps the, the easiest single phrase to sum up the distinction between guilt and shame is like this. Guilt says, I did wrong. Shame says, I 
am wrong. Guilt says, I didn't do this right. I didn't do the recycling right. I'm a vegetarian, but I had a bacon sandwich. I signed up for the gym and I didn't go. I part where I shouldn't have done. Something need, a debt needs to be paid. Shame says, I am wrong. I am unclean. I am unworthy. I am disgusting. I am repulsive to others. I am tainted. I am wrong. That's what shame does. And it feels like shame is on the rise. So we have lived in a guilt-based culture, but it feels like we are a culture which still is shaped by guilt, but increasingly is experiencing shame as well, as something which shapes how we respond and feel about life. And that seems to be very directly connected to the rise in social media. Because the way that social media works, it pulls on the levers of shame. That's how social media works. Social media is all about how we are perceived by others and what we can offer to others. What do you present on your profile? How do people perceive you? And what can you offer others in terms of how you follow them in their social media world? Are we reflecting the values and fashions of our culture or are we in some way out of step with it? And our phones can provide us with a constant reminder of where you stand socially. The constant binging of somebody liking or disliking what you have posted. You follow me and I'll follow you. You put something on and you're hoping, is it going to be liked or is it going to be ignored? And of course we might think this is a particular issue for younger people, which is, there's somebody's phone, they're just getting a social media update <laughs> pinged. Hope you got an uptick rather than a down one. We think of this particularly as an issue for young people, and it can be a huge issue, that just living in social media the whole time. We all have heard the stories. But you grannies, posting pictures of your grandkids and waiting for it to be liked. <laughs> you can be as sucked into this as anybody else. So it's not just the teenagers. It's your older ones as well. Eight years ago, which feels like a lifetime ago in terms of how fast our culture is moving. The, the journalist John Ronson published a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, in which he makes his observation. One day it hit me. Something of real consequence was happening. We were at the start of a great renaissance of public shaming. After a lull of 100 year, 180 years, public punishments were phased out in 1837 in the UK and 1839 in the US. It was back in a big way. When we deployed shame, we were utilizing an immensely powerful tool. And even if you are not on social media, and I'm barely on social media, I deliberately stepped back from it a few years ago because I didn't think it was doing my soul good. Even if you're not on social media, you know how powerful it is because you know how quickly those who appear to be powerful, powerful individuals or even powerful institutions, how quickly they will cower when there is a social media shaming. So somebody influential or a business or an institution of government says something which is regarded by some in the culture as being wrong and a social media pile-on happens and powerful people powerful institutions immediately buckle. Why? It's the power of shame, and social media is an immensely powerful tool in pouring shame on people's heads. And the real power of social media is the fear of being cancelled. Now, in shame-based cultures, the ultimate sanction is to be excluded from your clan. 
You do something which is shaming to your family, to your clan, in your village. And the ultimate sanction is you are shamed, you are excluded, you are banished, you are no, you're dead to us. You, are, you no longer exist to this family. You are shamed. You are cancelled. That's how shame-based cultures work. That's the power of shame-based cultures. But increasingly, that's at large in our Western guilt-based culture. The fear of being exiled, cancelled, shame. The power of shame is fear. And we can see that in how fearful people are about putting their heads above the parapets. Some of the things we're exploring in this series, which they happen, stuff happens in the workplace, and you feel ever so scared about putting your head above the parapet in the workplace. Why? It's a fear that you're going to be shamed. It's a fear that you're going to be cancelled, excluded. Now, in this series, we're, we're aiming to help us to understand better what is, what is happening in our culture and showing that Christianity offers us better and more satisfying answers than our culture is giving. And we need to see that shame is powerful in our culture. And we need to understand how shame works. And we need to understand how Jesus deals with it. Because Jesus doesn't just deal with our guilt, he's also able to remove our shame. Jesus is able to deal with the law problem, and he's also able to deal with our relationship problem. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Joshua 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua... Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised... They remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal, which sounds like the Hebrew for roll, until this day. Now this is a very graphic illustration. The Israelites were suffering both a guilt problem and a shame problem. Their guilt was that they had not obeyed the Lord. There was a standard. God had given them the law. He had given them the instruction. He had given them Moses to teach them, and they had rebelled against Moses, against the law, against God. And as a consequence, a whole generation died in the wilderness. They paid the penalty for their guilt. But there was also a shame problem, which was now attaching to the sons of those who had died. And that shame was the reproach of Egypt, the reproach of Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt. They had been humiliated. They'd even been made to kill their own children. They, in effect, had been cancelled as a people. And at this moment, when Joshua circumcises them, the Lord says that he is rolling away their reproach. He's rolling away their shame, and he does this by rolling away their foreskins. I wonder if we've got any volunteers for shame removal here this morning. 
brought my flint knife just in case. What is it about circumcision? It's amazing how often we have to talk about circumcision in church. It happens a lot in Scripture. Circumcision was the sign of the Israelites being cut off from the other nations for the Lord. They're meant to be distinct. They're meant to be God's special chosen people, marked out as gods. And that includes a physical marking of them. And the shame of slavery was rolled away as the people submitted to circumcision. They were marked then as those who could stand without shame before God. They'd been a cancelled people. Now they were people who were recognized. They had an identity as gods. They belonged to him, and that was to be the end of their fear. They were to no longer know the reproach of the nations. They were to no longer live in fear of the nations. They were to no longer have a sense of who are we. They were to know who they were, God's special people belonging to him, standing tall and unashamed before him. Now, circumcision is not required of Christians. What we experience, this is in Romans 2.29, is a circumcision of the heart, which happens by the Holy Spirit. No flint knives required. And this actually leads to a more complete shame removal. This is a scripture that we started our service with from 1 Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected, shamed. Jesus was shamed by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In Christ we are welcomed in. You put your faith in Christ, your guilt gets dealt with, that great exchange. His righteousness takes the place of your sin. But also the relational problem is fixed. You are now part of the family of God. There's no relational exclusion if you put your faith in Jesus. We have a lot of emphasis in our society about inclusion, but real inclusion is to be found in Christ. He has rolled our reproach away. He's removed our shame. Now, what should we do in response to this? The first thing we need to do, I think, is to identify the distortions. This is something we're trying to highlight in this series to help us see the distortions in our world. The reason that we feel guilty about things is because there is a standard. That's why we feel guilt. Guilt is powerful because there is a law which has to be kept. And at times we can experience shame because there are things which are shameful. And the tragedy is that our culture has fallen right into what is described in Romans chapter 1. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. The reality is that the lusts that our culture celebrates are things of which we should feel ashamed. And we have to see through the lies Because our culture tells us, don't feel ashamed about these things. Don't feel ashamed about any, and it's particularly around sex, 
Don't feel ashamed of any of your sexual desires or preference or habits. Don't shame me for these things. But the reality is that some of these things are shameful. And you should be ashamed. And many experience deep shame because of what they have done. That's a tragedy. Many people are bound with shame because of the way they have lived, the things that have been done to them. I was preaching at another church recently, and afterwards a young woman, I guess in her late 20s or something, came up to me, and she had lived the normal life of young women in the city. And had come to a realization, partly through what I preached and partly through something else, another meeting she'd been at early in the week, had had an encounter with Jesus and was suddenly seeing that the lies, that the things that she'd done and given herself to, which were meant to be fun and liberating and all the rest, actually were controlling and shameful and actually she'd been used by other people. And she'd had an encounter with Jesus where she was beginning to experience Jesus rolling away her shame. She began to see through the lies, started to see the truth, and started to see that Jesus offered something better than what our culture does. So we need to identify the distortions in our culture. But then we need to bring our shame to Jesus. Think about what that scripture says. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you feel shame... If you feel a sense of social exclusion, if there's something in your life which you have done or which somebody has done to you, which just leaves you totally curled up inside, that sense of shame you can't shake, you need to come to Jesus. Therapy might help you. Live in a therapeutic culture. And therapy can help talking some of this stuff through. And it might be that if the problem is a relational one because of something you've done in terms of relationship with somebody else, it might be that you need to do some relational work to restore that relationship. That can help as well. But Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. And we've got to take our stand on him. In the end, the only one who can fully and finally completely deal with our shame is Jesus. The one who trusted him will never be put to shame. And so it might be that some of you here today, what you need to experience is a spiritual knife. That you need to experience the scalpel of Christ, a spiritual circumcision, which will roll away your reproach, roll away your shame. Shame makes us fearful, shame makes us feel dirty. Shame makes us feel untouchable. Shame makes us feel unwanted. And what Jesus does is to cleanse us and welcome us and embrace us and say that we can stand before him. We can stand on the cornerstone, living stones, without shame, welcomed by him. You can trust Jesus. When Joshua stood before the Israelites with the word of the Lord and said, Okay, lads, it's time for circumcision. I just think there was some nervousness in the camp. 
And as we talk about shame, I know it generates nervousness. That's the power of shame. It makes you nervous. It makes you fearful. Even talking about it makes you scream inside. But you can trust Jesus. You can trust that he can wield the scalpel in a way which doesn't harm you, but heals you. Which doesn't mutilate you, but restores you. You can trust Jesus. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Lord, I pray for us. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who do carry a sense of shame. And even as I've been speaking, I found this incredibly hard. I ask that you would start to use that scalpel now to gently cut away that fearful, corrupting shame, to cut away the, the scar of it and to allow people to step into a freedom, experience of liberty, welcome, wholeness, purity, in a way which perhaps they haven't for maybe months or even years. Holy Spirit, would you move now amongst us? Deliver some who need to be delivered today, I pray. Roll away that reproach that some in this room are wrestling with. Roll it away, Lord. And let us know as well, Lord, the amazing joy of the grace of God that not only is our shame dealt with, but our guilt is as well. The debt has been paid. Oh, help us, Lord, in this generation, which is so often driven by guilt and its processes, structures, bureaucracy, red tape, so often shaped by shame in its emotional response to things. I pray, help us to demonstrate what being in Christ means, a people who are free, know who we are, able to walk with our heads held high because of what you have done. Christ, the cornerstone. On you, we take our stand. And in you, we will never be put to shame. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We are uh, going to take communion as we sing this next song.